Sometimes the question from leaders isn't, what do I do next? But it's a more profound, harder question. How do I create space? On this episode, the four questions you can begin to ask to find a bit of margin. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 540. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the conversations that comes up a lot with the folks I work with and certainly in our listening community is how do I create more space? So many of us have had success in our careers. We've had success leading teams. We've worked for organizations that have done amazing things in the world and are doing amazing things. And yet we struggle, so many of us, with how do we create a little bit of margin, a little bit of space? Today's guest is going to really give us the invitation to do that more effectively and also some practical steps that will help us to get there and to take those first steps along the journey. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Juliet Fund. She is a renowned keynote speaker and tough love advisor to the Fortune 500, who is regularly featured in top global media outlets, including Forbes and Fast Company. She's the founder and CEO of the Juliet Fund Group, helping business leaders and organizations to unleash their full potential by unburdening talent from busy work. She has earned one of the highest ratings in the largest leadership event in the world and has worked with brands such as Spotify, National Geographic, Costco, Pepsi, Nike, and many more. Her new book is titled A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. Juliet, that sounds great to me. I'm so glad to welcome you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I was really looking forward to this one. Oh, me too. And uh, you know, I was thinking about your work, and it, it just seems to me, and so many things in life, we teach what we most need to learn. And uh, when this podcast started, one of the reasons it started is I was, I was really trying to find a show that that did some of what we do on this on this show. But also, I really struggled with so many of the skills, still do in some ways that that we talk about on this show of leading well, and it, 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 so many of these skills, I mean, come naturally to some people. But for me, that was never the case. I really felt like I needed to learn so much. And I felt like, and I still feel today, that because I struggled with so many of these, so many of these things, I feel like I'm in a, a little bit of a better position to help others mm. to get better. And when I really dove into your work, I had that same sense with you of that you've struggled mm. a bit with this, but also that because of that struggle, it's helped you to get better. It, does that relate? Does that, that resonate? I agree with everything except for the part about a bit. I didn't struggle a bit. I struggled <laughs> constantly. Well, and we do as uh, writers and teachers, we always are solving our own problem that then endlessly fascinates us, I think, often to then become the work that we do. So that's not an uncommon path. But I am not hardwired to be a thoughtful, slow-paced person with margin. I am hardwired to be a fast-paced, workaholic, Manhattan-born, tech-addicted lady who, if I didn't just keep my own book in my purse all the time, would probably forget in 30 minutes and return to those to those habits. So I think that there is a sense of 
needing a regimen, not a cure. And we need like flossing or the gym. We need some reliable, easy things that we can do over and over and over. And I turn to them every single day. I I was referring to that. I don't know if you know the Drew Barrymore movie, 50 First Dates, where she has a oh, brain yeah. injury. Yeah, I remember that. She has a brain injury that every single morning she wakes up and she forgets her entire life and they show her a little video. Here's who you are. Here's who you love. And I kind of feel like I wake up every single morning as the busy, crazy, tech-addicted lady. And then I open my eyes and I remember all the stuff that I've learned and I can, I can work differently and be different. But I, I think the fact that I identify so much with individual people that we help and coach makes it much easier for me to care about them. Uh, there's so much empathy in what you just said. And I I think it's going to be a really helpful place for so many of us who do struggle with this and me too. How do we get a bit better Before we get into that, though, one of the terms that comes up in the book a bunch is white space. What is white space and what's important about it? Sure. We should, I think, start with a foundational metaphor of the book that will lead us into that, which is that if you were building a fire, you would need certain ingredients. You'd need maybe newspaper, pine needles, uh, maybe that industrial white toxic fire starter that always works or different kinds of wood. But you could create a pile that would never, ever, ever ignite unless you added one critical ingredient, and that is the space. And it is the oxygenating little passages in between the wood and the pine needles and the crumpled newspaper that makes your blaze ignite. And this is the metaphor that I care so deeply about people trying on for size in their own lives that they at work, at home, need oxygenating space to make everything else work. And and we call the time that this is, we call this space white space because when I was coaching executives, you'd open up a paper calendar and you'd first start by saying, how much white is on the page? Is it just, or we would look at a computer calendar now, blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks of color, or can we actually see white? Because the white becomes a cue, a signal of how much untapped potential a day can hold creatively, strategically, energetically. And that's why it's called white space. So the technical definition we use is time with no assignment. Ah. And it is that open, fluid, beautiful time that just used to lurk in between things and now has become arguably the most endangered element of our work. I'm thinking about what you just said, and I happened to pull a small paragraph out of the book as I was reading it that really resonated with me on that. Uh, You write, think for a minute about the satisfying feeling when we clean out a garage. We're sure to find treasure among the holiday decor, the memorabilia, but one find is far more valuable than the rest, the space itself. Stand before Mm -hmm. a freshly emptied room or a freshly emptied hour and you feel instantly thrilled about all its possibilities. Beautiful, bountiful space sets our energy free and yet is missing for so many. What a wonderful way to capture it. And I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling. And the interesting thing is too, in addition to that feeling really good, there's also a lot of science that backs this up too. And I was wondering if you could share a bit of the science with us on this. There, there's a lot of science and it is, is burgeoning now because people are getting more and more curious about how does the brain actually respond to a cessation of this busyness that we all live in. And 
the studies are definitely accumulating. So some of the ones in the book we talk about that I think are so fascinating. First of all, if you took a strategic pause, that's how we talk about it in the book, the way that you let white space in, in that pause, sitting at your desk, doing apparently nothing, if you took an MRI of your brain, you'd actually see amazing stuff going on. There'd be complex activity in the part of the brain called the default neural network. And that is linked to insight and introspection and memory and creativity. But what you would see in an office, if you walk by this person is nothing, just sitting. A lack of activity does not mean a lack of productivity. Mm. And then those studies go on to talk about pauses that increase our effectiveness, reduce our mistakes, make us, I love this one. They, they talked about when you have a creative task or a strategic need and you step away from it, you experience something called beneficial forgetting, where you just accidentally disconnect with the previous threads that you were building. And when you return, you return fresh and free of uncumbering associations from the last time you attacked it. So many, many, many people are helping us understand that the pause just makes everything better. It's so interesting you say that. I literally just picked up an email before this conversation from a client who said, I just got back from vacation and there's tons of work to do. And then the next line said, and I feel so motivated to do the work because he had Ugh. had such a wonderful vacation and it had created so much space beforehand. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, I think we've all had that experience. And yet we don't think to do it very regularly intentionally. And I'm thinking back to what you said about keeping the book in your purse, right? Like we think about it going into vacation and out of vacation, but we don't necessarily think about how do I be intentional about this on a daily basis? And you've created this beautiful system looking at simplification questions and how we can enter into this a bit. And it's driven around some of the things that you call assets that a lot of us are already good at, but then looking at how those assets can get us in trouble and cause some risk. And I thought it might mm. be helpful to look at them and and then to think about how we could practically approach this. And the first one is the asset you call is drive. And the risk would be that we move a little bit into overdrive. Could you tell me a bit more about that and, and how you think about that? Sure. You're referring to what we call the thieves of time. And they were the result of research when we tried to figure out what makes people busy. Why is everybody walking in with this beautiful little spark and then being greeted by an avalanche of emails and meetings and decks until they can barely breathe at the end of the day? And why? Why is this happening? And so there were a lot of different drivers, many outside of people's control. Some were things like seasonality of the economy and leadership behaviors and technology. But if you really boil them down, there were four things that were the initiators of most busyness for people. And the irony was, as you said, that every single one of them was an asset that had just run amok. So each of the thieves will be relevant if we want to talk about the questions. So we should learn them. They are drive, excellence, information, and activity. And they're, they're great and foundational. And you wouldn't hire anybody who didn't display appropriate drive and excellence and you know, being informed and a lust for activity. But when they overgrow, that's that risk part. Drive becomes overdrive. Excellence becomes perfectionism. Information becomes information overload and activity becomes frenzy. Mm. And the thieves of time are just responsible for so much of this 
tolerated misery that is the way that work feels for regular people and for leaders every day. You know, so many of our challenges really do come from a place of strength. But like you said, they, mm-hmm. they become overused, right? The drive becomes right. overdrive. Uh, the, the excellence becomes perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about these questions that you invite us to consider in order to be a bit of that daily checkpoint for each of us of, are we creating a bit of space, a bit of that white space? And the question that you invite us to consider around drive, especially when it ter- has turned into overdrive, is, is there anything I can let go of? And I'm curious, what is it that leaders have such a hard time of letting go of? Mm. They don't always understand the difference between activity and productivity. And I I alluded to this before, but there was a wonderful study that was done by IIBA. They said the number two problem that was vexing all leaders that were in a senior position, 86% of them said they didn't have enough time to think strategically, but it doesn't show up on their to-do lists. The things that show up on their to-do lists are driving projects, opening markets, launching uh, new products, the things that have to do with doing, box checking, moving from not done yet to done are the easiest things for leaders to put on their plate. And then of course we can add the whole undercurrent of micromanaging and too much overseeing. And we could talk about that if you want. So those action oriented steps are the things that leaders spend a lot of their time doing and they don't, they don't have uh, an awareness or a norm within their culture to help them understand that if they let go of some of those things, bountiful space would open. The mind for which they were hired in their senior position would have some time to play. And it might solve things that were far more important than, you know, have I checked V37 of an internal deck that somebody else could really check? And that's where leaders, I think, get lost in those they got lost in the paralyzing detail of the things that they think will move business forward. It's, it's interesting that so many of us get hired for these roles of leadership for our thinking and the strategy mm-hmm. and right. the experience. And yet you, you look at calendars like you and I have both done a lot and, and, and they're filled with things that are not really those things at all. They're not really taking the time and creating the space to do the thinking, to create the space, to allow that to happen. Yeah. If you'll allow me, I sort of have this craving to go a level higher though, of these leaders that you're talking about, because oh, sure. we first, really first have to look at why is it that the posture of thoughtfulness is not respected in the first place? There was a time when if you saw a leader, you walked into their office, they had their feet on the desk, they were staring out of a window, you would freeze and you would retreat like a rattlesnake was in the room because that was the golden thinking time that they were concocting, dreaming, planning, visioning. And in regular work now, whether we're in physical or virtual spaces, thinking is something that we hide around the corner like a smoker to do. We're embarrassed to be pausing. We don't do it in front of other people. We, If we saw somebody in our office just thinking, we wouldn't have any idea how to approach them. We'd probably say, what are you working on? What are you working on? And break their train of thought. So that, that respect for thinking drives business, that has to be first on the table before we move into 
Can we reduce waste, which by the way is very measurable and absolutely busyness is costing us business. We can talk about that. But before we talk about that granular task of making the work more spacious, we must address the the philosophy, the, the, the dogma first to say, thinking is often what makes your business day the most effective. And that's where I'm very driven to make sure that leaders hear that first. I have experienced the same thing in talking to leaders in all different industries. And I'm guessing you've had a bit of success with the folks you've worked with and the teams of changing that dynamic a bit. When that dynamic changes, what is helpful on starting the process of changing the culture around how people think about thinking time? Sure. So when you are doing the work, there are two types of catch tuna and krill. Tuna, you know, it's a ginormous fish. It's a big whap on the deck when you pull it in. And krill is little teeny beeny crustaceans that you can hardly see. And so if you imagine a reductive move in the direction of finding some tuna would be, we're canceling an international conference. We are dropping a a product line. We're letting go of a region. We have decided not to pursue a certain side project at all anymore. Those are big, reductive cuts. But krill is easier for most people, and it's manageable, and it also doesn't rip your shoulder out when you're trying to reel it in. These little krill (laughs) moments are, can I make a 400-word email into a 50-word email? And can I make a 50-minute meeting into a 45-minute meeting? And can I just take little moments of stupidity. Can I get CCs and FYIs and reply to alls to actually really seriously finally go down in my organization? That's the krill and it adds up and it can sustain you honestly, just as well as the tuna. One of the other questions that I love is where is good enough, good enough. And, Mm. and this falls under that, that thief of, um, perfectionism. Yeah. Excellence turned into perfectionism. Yeah. And you say in the book that this is this is a struggle for you, this one in particular of the four. How do you check yourself on this? That is my absolute weakest. I'm the lady who sends the business cards back four times because the teal isn't right. And that's, so that's, you know, that's me. I will tell you though, that I love and revere perfectionists. So those of you who are out there There is so much beauty and art in finding specificity and in pursuing that excellence. And I will never denigrate it in the pursuit of helping people regulate it. But like all the thieves, perfectionists end up doing actions that are really recreational or habitual and not tactical. Because like all the thieves... It feels really good to do the thing that our thief drives us to do. Activity people check a box and check a box and check a box and check a box. And why do they do that? Because it feels so good to make that little box and then put the little check in. And so perfectionists have their version of that where the order of something being perfect is nourishing to their soul. It calms them down. It is a source of enormous beauty for a spreadsheet to have all of the columns in the same width. And if you're not one of my people, then you don't get it. But it's a thing of beauty. And it makes you feel like the world is a dependable and specific place. But it doesn't always lead to tactical necessity. And the lens we want to ask ourselves is, where is good enough good enough? Where does the extra effort 
add to business results or make my life better. That's mm. where we want to pour on the excellence. And where is it just either habit, where I'm, I'm at the printer changing the color of yellow for the company softball flyer three times, or where is it just that kind of recreational is the only word I can really come up with where it just feels so good to do it. That's not really the best reason to do things at work. Ah, uh, yeah, indeed. And I'm thinking about what you just said about habit and how it's so... By the way, everything you mentioned, I can directly relate to. The columns on the spreadsheet, <laughs> the colors sending it back. I've done all those things. So maybe I've right. fallen this too. And right. part of it is just habit, right? It's just how we approach the world. How do you, in the moment, either for you or for folks you've worked with, like, what is it that you do in the moment to kind of interrupt that and notice that and maybe break that? I'm like, oh, wait, maybe I shouldn't be reprinting this flyer mm -hmm. three times. Like, I, I'm just kind of curious, like, if you found something that's really helped around that. Yes, there's only one thing, and it's the entire book is just take a pause. That that in, And I'll, I'll elaborate on where you go from there. But when people get in the habit of interlacing the day with a small sip of openness, three seconds, five seconds, 30 seconds, intelligence can kick in over just that maniacal metronome that we live by. So if you stop and pause and make that a daily habit, like brushing your teeth, that there will be some space, they have permission to think or permission to breathe. I, I want to say that that is the foundational practice that then leads to the kind of clarity where you're standing at the printer and you have a moment of insight that re where you can realize that you're not on the right track. That moment of insight is more of a, a of an advanced feature of doing the work. So in the beginning, we just ask ourselves the question, where is good enough, good enough? And we sit with it. Maybe we don't have a sense of it, and then it's time to ask for help. We might go to the person that we work with, or we might find a buddy to say, I have five projects on my desk right now. If I apply my full, the full force of my excellence tornado on all five of them, I'll work 12 hours every day and I'll be exhausted. How can I determine which of these deserves the spotlight? Maybe two of them are client facing critical things. That's where you pour it on. Maybe three of them are internal or less important. Maybe they can even be postponed or delegated. We sometimes need other people to walk us through. And as leaders, we reverse that those two chairs and we shine spotlights purposefully on people to help them out of the woods of perfectionism. When you assign a bunch of stuff, help your people by putting a highlighter or a bolding or verbally saying, these are the three, these are the two that deserve the golden touch. Keep mm. telling them that over and over because they, they won't know in the beginning and then they'll get a little better as they kind of step into the practice further. Boy, a couple of highlights on a page or a mention in a meeting. And 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 again, you're you're fishing for a few krill here, right? Like you're starting to do some changes, not only to change the dynamic of how you approach it, but how others around you approach it. And you start doing that. And eventually you do start really seeing the change that changes culture and how people think about it. It's just You it, do. Yeah. You do. And this is the I will tell you this is the absolute most exciting time in professional history to do this kind of change because right now there's this window of work being redesigned where all the car parts have been taken out of the engine and they're sitting on the driveway and we're re-examining everything. And and so the, I wouldn't say we have a blank page in front of, but it's pretty close. 
in terms of an opportunity for behavioral redesign. And as Mm. each of your listeners goes back to work or moves through the end of the pandemic, as we hope, they will be setting new norms, new ways of thinking, new culture. And then the amber is going to cool and we're going to be stuck like that mosquito for the next 20 years of whatever it is that we cook right now. So I'm thrilled to be having these conversations right this minute. And And leaders should think about this moment for them to take a pause and really think about what they want work to look like, to stop all the frenzy that the pandemic has bought them and just step back. It it could be one of the most important pauses in their career. Well, speaking of changing norms, one of the norms that's absolutely changed in the last couple of decades, certainly since I started my career, is just the amount of information we all have access to, which in so many ways is an incredible blessing. And yet, as you say in the book, the risk here is it turns into overload. And I I say this as a person who is part of the problem because I air a podcast every week and I regularly (laughs) hear from people like, I got all these books on my bookshelf and yet I haven't read them all or haven't necessarily taken the action. The question you invite us to consider on this is, what do I truly need to know? This is Mm. so hard. What do you find that works for people when they're grappling with this question? I'll tell you my favorite story about the thief of information is this guy, Steve Martin, you might've gotten to him in the book, but he's a data scientist at Microsoft and he got asked to produce all this collateral material for the sales team, 22 pieces of decks and slides and this and that. And he had an instinct that the sales team really didn't need all this stuff and that it wasn't really critical information, but he didn't, he just did it anyway. However, because he's kind of a prankster, he embedded in every one of the 22 pieces, a, a link It was not sneaky or in the footer. It was just in the middle of a page that said, if you're actually reading this, email me and I'll send you a $50 Amazon gift certificate. (laughs) And they, no one ever emailed him for the money, but the, the kind of best part of the story is that then the team that requested those materials came back to him the following year and said, can you please do an even longer list of things that we want you to create? And he was able to say, <laughs> That's awesome. no, you don't need any of this. Nobody's even reading it. And by the way, you guys, you, the committee requesting it, you missed all of the links also. And you didn't, you didn't notice it either because you didn't even read it. So I just think that there's this profound objectivity that we need to create about how silly some of this abundance is. And then we ask ourselves the question that defeats that thief. What do I truly need to know? Or what do we truly need to know? So we begin that practice in the simplest way, which is that our notifications all day long are absolute toxicity to our effectiveness. And we want as much information as we can on a pull versus push system. So anytime technology is telling you, I have something to tell you, I have something to tell you, that's not what we want. We want to go to technology to ask questions of it when we darn feel like it. And so moving toward a zero notification system is a really wonderful way to do that. Another technique that leaders might want to consider is this is a norm you can create within your company around CCs. And CCs are a primary place where people think others need to know things, but they absolutely do not. I had a client who said, if you get a CC, it's like, um, going into the mafia because once you get in, you never get out. And <laughs> I, I think that's how a lot of people feel. So simple technique they can play with called the weight technique, W-A-I-T. 
stands for whose action is this? You open an email, you populate the CC line probably out of habit. Maybe there's four or five, six people in there. And then you take that beautiful pause and say, who has an action on this thread? Uh, not just a, a not they're not just sitting in that glass walled operating, you know, the room above an operation, above a surgery that's glass and everybody's looking down. That's how the world of CC is. Everyone's just watching the thread. We don't want those people in there. We want the people that have an action on the thread. Whose action is this? You'll probably end up with two out of the seven and you'll delete the others and Krill is found. And so that's just a couple real life ways that you can begin to put that question into action. I am often surprised when talking with people and even friends and family that have never really done any intention around notifications on devices and mm. they leave it up to the software or the service or the app to set the defaults. And I have thought about it through the lens of how can we get people to just take some, speaking of taking some space, like five minutes with the notification screen on any device can save you hours and hours of distraction in your, in your year. And yet I hadn't really thought about till the, just this moment of, is there anything that I might do as a leader to also set that as a norm or maybe help encourage people in a team? And I'm, I'm sort of curious if you've ever gone down that route with a team or with a leader of like, having some norms just around, I mean, this veers a little bit into like, okay, it's my device, I can do what I want. But I'm curious if you've seen anyone do that intentionally and to start to set some norms in the workplace of like, how do we just handle notifications better? We begin with the concept of permission, I think is the most important thing. I was I was working with the editor just before we published and I called her and I said, I just noticed that the word permission is 31 times in the book. Is that okay? Do we need to go to the thesaurus? She said, no, let's do 31 more because this topic, everything we're talking about, people need enormous amounts of permission. It's counterintuitive. It frightens them to take a public pause, to think in front of people. So permission, permission, permission in the notification sphere is the same. You can say as a leader, I just want you to know that I'm not expecting you to have your notifications on. I'm not expecting you to have, I don't even know what you call it, that little bar that pops across the right side of your computer every time an email comes up oh, and yeah. completely distracts you from everything that you're doing. If you say as a leader, it is never my expectation that any of those are on. I'm assuming that you as a smart professional can go take a sip of your incoming stream of information when it serves you tactically that permission is usually all people need. Now, we mm. will then struggle with addiction and the fun of those little red numbers popping up on our apps and things like that. That's a different question. But I think that leaders begin by permission and then perhaps by modeling to talk about. I just was listening to uh, somebody yesterday. It might have been on, I can't remember which podcast, but somebody talking about a leader who walked in and turned off their phone very publicly in front of a meeting and put it away. And then everybody scrambled to also go turn off their phone. If you were a leader and you talked on a town hall or a stage about, I took a disconnected vacation and I never checked in and here's what happened. Or I decided to turn off all my notifications for a week. And I found that all that information was still there waiting for me when I needed it. These kinds of public declarations can be a tacit invitation to teams to do the same. And it is also laced with permission because you're already modeling it. That's such a great invitation for us all to do and something each one of us can really do to lead by example. And if we do that, man, what a wonderful way to influence this so well. Yeah. And, th and this actually is a good lead-in to the last question, 
when thinking about activity moving into that place of frenzy. The question you mm. invite us to think about mm. is what deserves my attention? And Ugh. I'm thinking about this one through the lens of, and there's so much professionally we could say, but but also through the lens of personal. And we really do want to have it all. So many of us, we want to have everything for kids and family and personal time and reading and activities and all those things. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, like, as you think about what deserves my attention and, and challenging people to examine that, what's helpful for them? Slowness, pausing, taking the time. You know, our minds have become this terrible closet, you know, the closet with the roller skates falling out of it that you close with your hip and you're going to clean it out someday. And so there just isn't inside the mind, there is not spaciousness. And that lack of spaciousness just leads us to just keep picking up the next thing. So activity people, the ones who particularly need this question more than anybody else, they are riding the adrenaline high of checking off one thing after another. They also have that badge of honor sense. I feel valuable. They tend to numerically count. I did 20 things today. I did 15 things today. And so to slow down and say, what deserves my attention can... I mean, the results can be very moving. Sometimes there's a woman in the book, uh, when she slowed down enough to ask that question, she quit her job Mm. because that was not, once clarity came, the question forced her up against a wall and said, it just, this is not for you. And, And sometimes it's just a task. Sometimes it's, oh, you know, what deserves my attention is prepping for Dave and the podcast, not sending out emails to try to do social media stuff. That can be, it can be as small as that, or it can be a crashing realization when you're in the kitchen and your child is trying to ask you a question and you're too busy to be present. And that beautiful question sneaks into your head and says, what deserves my attention? And you put down the spatula and you take out the AirPods and you stop everything and you turn both shoulders toward them and you say, hi, how can I help you? And so it, it's just so nimble. It goes, it goes everywhere. And the thing that I've discovered at the times that I do that, it's interesting you mentioned the AirPods in the kitchen because that's totally me (laughs) listening to a podcast while I'm cooking dinner. Right. When I make that choice, I don't even have to do it all the time. But if I do it once an evening Mm -hmm. or twice, what a difference that makes in the dynamic of conversation and relationship the rest of the day. Uh, and really showing up in a way that I want to show up. And it's such a it's such a powerful reminder. Simple. I mean, like so much simple, but if done consistently, you know, we're fishing for krill. If done consistently, it really does make a big difference in the long run. And your loved ones can benefit from having a specific way to ask for that. You should teach everyone you care about and all your children to say, I would like full attention. And that phrase or that word, full attention, is a spectacular snap you out of it moment where if your child says, I, we, our children now have done this since they were little, but you should teach them to say, I would like full attention. And my husband says it too, because there's times when we can't give it. We want a cue, a shorthand in our families to say, you know, that half attention that you give me a lot because you try to be a superwoman or a super dad and also be with me, but this is different. I need something different right now. It's one of my favorite, favorite cues for family life. Hmm. Huge. Uh, Juliet, thank you so much for 
inviting us to consider these questions. Uh, I know it's going to be so helpful for folks. We're going to be linking them up in the notes and in this week's weekly leadership guide, so be watching for that. Juliet Funt is the author of A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. Juliet, thank you so much for your best work. Thank you. I neglected to mention one of the other resources from Juliet that will be helpful for us in thinking about how we create a bit more space, and that's the busyness test. Juliet and her team have put together this assessment that'll be helpful for all of us to determine where we are struggling and also what are some practical steps we can begin to take that will be useful in the context of these questions. Uh, Thanks, Juliet, for making that available to us. And it is linked up in the episode notes. Also, will be in this week's weekly leadership guide. So watch for that this week when it comes in your inbox. Several related episodes that may also be helpful to you if you found this conversation useful. One of them is episode 308, The Power of Solitude, with my guest, Mike Irwin. Uh, Mike has really looked at so many leaders over not only his own career, but history, and looked at how they view solitude effectively. And he talks about those in detail in the book. And in that conversation, I think you'll find a lot of practical steps that will really line up with so much of what we heard today in this conversation, episode 308 for that, especially if you, like me, find that struggle for solitude a good starting point. Also recommended is episode five. How to Change Your Behavior with my guest BJ Fogg. Of course, so much of this conversation today is in the context of behavior change. How do we take those small steps, as Juliet and I talked about, to really, over time, have big things happen? BJ Fogg, an expert on creating habits and behavior that sticks and He talks in episode 507 exactly how to do that step-by-step, and one of the big key pieces of that is starting small, small actions done consistently to make a big change, episode 507. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 522, How High Achievers Begin to Find Balance. Uh, That's my most recent conversation with Michael Hyatt. Uh, Michael, of course, a high achiever himself and talks in detail in that conversation about some of the things that have worked for him and also the places where he struggled in his career in order to find the balance that so many of us seek. Of course, very much in line with today's conversation and many practical steps that Michael recommends in that conversation as well. Again, that's episode 522. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you'd like to get access to everything and be able to search by topic, uh, go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. That's going to give you access to the entire library, searchable by topic. We have this episode filed under productivity and also personal leadership. So many episodes over the years we've had on both of these topics and so much more. Plus, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide I just mentioned that will come uh, each week after the episodes air, just a few days afterwards, and provides all of the links and resources, not only from each episode, but tons of other resources, current event news, things that I've been finding in media that I think will be helpful to you to support your leadership development. Plus, access to all of my book notes, interview notes, uh, Juliet's, uh, the highlights from her book, all in here as well. All of that at the free membership, plus a lot more. Just go to coachingforleaders.com, set that up. You'll be off and running permanently with access to everything inside of coachingforleaders.com. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I will see you back next Monday for our next conversation on leadership. Take care.